Ludlow, and welcome to Rock and Roll Film Club, a podcast about music biopics. I'm Kathleen Mahoney. I'm Ryan Major. And today we're talking about 24-hour party people. Woo! Yeah. Yeah. Party People was released in 2002 and is about the role of Tony Wilson in Manchester's music scene from 1976 to 1992. It covers the rise and fall of Tony's record label, Factory Records, and his Manchester nightclub, The Hacienda. The movie stars Steve Coogan as Wilson and was directed by Michael Winterbottom. And today on the pod, we have our friend Jim Leonard. Hello, Jim. Hi, Jim. What's up, guys? Thanks for being on the pod. Yeah. Hey is uh, in the band, in front of the band, Kremlin Bats. Great true, band. <laughs> That's true, yeah. <laughs> you got um, Awesome. And we were initially going to do a different movie. We were going to do, do you want to talk about the movie we were going to do instead? We're probably going to have to do it at some point, but Jim, you're lucky. You dodged a bullet here. I know, for sure. Yeah, we were originally going to do The Dirt, which is uh, the Motley Crue movie. Um, which I had never seen and chose because I thought it would be funny because I figured it would be so bad it would be funny. <laughs> but it's just really bad. <laughs> how, how far did you oh, make bad. it into the movie? I watched the whole thing. Oh what? my god! <laughs> yeah, because I thought we were gonna have to do it and then after it I was like holy shit we can't do this. <laughs> wow. Um, Wow. I, so I have not, I did not even start it. Jim messaged me on like Sunday or something. But yeah, what was so, what was so awful about it? Because I, I feel like I've heard it's just a total. I mean, in a lot of ways it's true, but, um, you know, just the heavy handed misogyny throughout the entire <laughs> film. Um, just like shitty editing. Uh, yeah. You know. I think the only redeeming part of the movie is the Ozzy Osbourne scene, just because I love Ozzy. I didn't. Um, I did not make it that far. I have to admit. <laughs> yeah, it's like ten minutes, and he snorts a line of red ants and uh, peas in a pool. <laughs> so he knows that a party is what you're saying. Oh yeah. Yeah. I so my my struggle with that is I made it probably about thirty five minutes in, and I was like, wait a minute. I don't like Molly Crew, <laughs> and they're horrible people. <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing watching this yeah. movie? And this movie's bad. In my free time. I mean, yeah. back when the, that meant something. The only other positive I had from that was like, I think the kid who played Tommy Lee actually did a decent job. And if you watch it, like he definitely learned like all the stick twirling and like, grabbing the symbols and all that dumb stuff. There's a great video of that man dancing, or not even like dancing, but like rocking out with air guitar to his own music on a table at Interscope Records while a bunch of bored executives text each other. And it is one of my favorite things. It's so oh, man. funny. Oh God. He's just like rocking out and they're all like, yep, 15 minutes late, you know? <laughs> Was that like his audition video? No, no, the record was done. Gotcha. Oh, so this is actually a video of Tommy. Yeah, I thought you no, 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 no. This is a video Holy of actor musician 
I want to say his name is Machine Gun Kelly. Is that Machine Gun Kelly? <laughs> you know what? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who that dude is either. <laughs> okay, we'll save it. We'll save it for when we talk about the dirt with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we will require you to come back for that. In the um, meantime, though, I, I guess we can talk about Tony Wilson and yeah. 24-hour party people. Um, yeah, totally. So before we get into the plot, um, just by way of the real history, Tony Wilson was a British television presenter, record label owner, and nightclub manager. Um, and his involvement with popular music began with hosting this like culture and music program on the news on Granada Television. And then from there, he co-founded Factory Records, which launched the band's um, Joy Division and Happy Mondays. And he also founded uh, a music club, the Hacienda Nightclub in Manchester, which was kind of like associated with the acid house and rave scene. So as like the music scene was kind of shifting to that, he was he was part of that transition. And he was known as Mr. Manchester for his work promoting Manchester culture throughout his career. I'd like to, uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry. That's it. Well, I'd like to make an observation. I feel like Granada Television is a confusing name for a TV station in Manchester. Yeah, I would what's up with that? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Um, had you guys seen this movie before? I did, but not since probably like 2004 or five. What about you, Jim? Yeah, same here. I think I uh, saw it in high school. Yeah. I hadn't seen it since. Oh, wow. Yeah, I had uh, not seen it before. Um, I guess probably the number one thing that you really can't separate from this movie is uh, Steve Coogan is Tony Wilson. And uh, I thought he did a really good job. For years, I've been carrying around kind of, for some reason, I don't really understand some sort of low-level ill will towards Steve <laughs> Coogan. I'm not really sure what that's based on, but uh, I, re I remember seeing this movie and be like, oh, shit, he's really good in this. And I like him in that one scene in Coffee and Cigarettes, but I'm not, like, a fan. Yeah, I I'm actually a huge Coogan fan. <laughs> <laughs> something, he did, something he did not long ago that I really loved was this TV show called Saxondale. Have you guys ever seen that? Oh, Never right. Heard of it. So good. It's he plays an ex roadie. I think he was like supposed to be a roadie for Metallica or Van Halen or something like that. He's like washed up, living in the suburbs of England, and now he's a pest terminator. And he drives like a Mustang through you know the UK and like just kills roaches and it's about his life. <laughs> it's a hilarious character. That's awesome. I I've heard great things about it. Um, yeah, and um, I mean, Alan Partridge was like already That's, established yeah. by this point, and isn't Alan like Partridge it. also like a news television person? Well, it's like that character was kind of based on Tony Wilson, so it's like this weird, you know, life, oh. life thing. But um, yeah, so it's like a similarly sort of delusionally arrogant. Uh, news guy. <laughs> you know, you know what? What I liked about Twenty Four Hour Party people that maybe made it feel a little bit lightweight, but certainly made it like fun to watch is, uh, you know, Tony. Although arrogant, is like he's a likable guy. He's a fun guy to spend almost two hours with. Like, yeah, it, there, there's 
at no point, like he doesn't challenge us too much to, you know, root for him. Like I want, yeah, I want, yeah, he's bad with money and uh, he gets a blow job in front of his wife. But like in general, he's like, you know, he's cool. He has yeah. his flaws, but he, you know, he's honest is how it seems. He's like forthcoming with all of it. Yeah, and for like somebody who constantly gets accused of taking himself too seriously it like doesn't seem like he takes himself that seriously and i was totally struck too by just like yeah how funny this movie was and the dialogue like compared to a lot of these other movies that we've been watching for this podcast where it's like you know it has to hit the plot point of what the person did in their life and like, oh yeah the expository and, uh, and like these people don't feel like real people at all so like it was it was very fun to just be like hanging out with this guy who like has great one-liners. I think also that it was that he, he breaks the third wall constantly, and the fourth wall. The fourth wall. <laughs> I majored in theater. Not dear. <laughs> no. All right. So he breaks the fourth wall repeatedly, and from the beginning, and uh, even the way that is shot, a lot of it is on digital video, and a ton of it is handheld uh handheld camera work so it feels like really documentary style it feels real and what i really admire almost more than anything in this movie is that it really strives to give you a sense of place manchester you know the spirit of the area and even the fucking like geography of it is like constantly referred to and constantly on display and uh it, it's you know it's a celebration of it yeah oh. Yeah. I and like usually I hate it when movies break the fourth wall. Like it just seems like a real cop out at times. Totally. You know, like narrative cheat. Yeah, exactly. Or like internal monologue and stuff like that. I never really liked that, but with this it seems so fitting to just like separate, you know, give give you some breathing room for how much is actually going on in the movie. Totally. I completely agree. And it also like for again, I kept thinking about like the other other movies we've watched and like one of the big kind of challenges of making these biopics is like you're depicting objective events right but you have to like shorten everything and dramatize it so there's like obviously you know some fictionalizing going on so like this was a really good device to be like you know memory is kind of faulty and like i think it happened this way but you know this guy yeah. doesn't just is up to being an unreliable narrator yes, at the beginning. Yes, exactly, exactly. It, it's a good cheat. It, it makes it feel more real in a lot of ways, you know? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Also, he's, yeah, Steve, he's just really funny. It's very funny. Yes, yeah, so I guess, yes, yeah, so the movie opens with Tony Wilson in his, like, news job doing some weird job where he is like hang gliding for a new segment um and that kind of like sets the stage of tony wilson being this guy who like flies too close to the sun but dares to anyways but um yeah i guess that was like based on like something the actual tony wilson did for a, a new segment i love that icarus line in the beginning too oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like i will just say icarus it is like if you know what i mean You'll relate it to other things in this film, you know? Yeah. And it's like, if you don't, you should read more. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing that actually, that consistently amused me throughout is quoting books and writers and thinkers and, yeah. you know, it juxtaposes these, like, like, you know, this, like, 
highfalutin language with the fact that he is flying around on a hang glider and like busting his ass nails somewhere. Right, like it kind of, it does a lot of things. It like positions him as this guy who thinks he's like, in, you know, has this like important place in, in culture that he can relate this to like Renaissance Italy. So that like pretty much right off the bat, we, we start learning about like his engagement with the local scene when we see him at the first uh, Manchester Sex Pistols gig. And there was one um, like, as far as live performance scenes, we've seen all different ways that they do this movies, but this one I actually thought was pretty clever. They interspersed actual footage with out of focus lookalike extras in the background. And since so much of the movie is already that kind of like shaky handheld camera, it's really easy to cut between actual footage and something like that without having it be super jarring. Yeah, totally. Uh, I thought that was really tasteful. It, yeah. Like when I first watched it though, I was like, oh no, like do they do this through the whole thing? Like I did, couldn't remember. Um, and I'm glad that they didn't, because that would have been a nightmare. If yeah, that, that would have been, yeah. Like that. But just to do it for that one event, and they had the actual footage, like, it was a good move. Particularly yeah. considering, like, he talks about it like it's this mythical event throughout the movie, and, mm -hmm. like, cuts around, you see all these guys who turn out to be supporting characters throughout. Right, right. Um, I was, like, interested to learn, too, that the cinematographer of this movie is this, like, super accomplished guy, Robbie Mueller, who was like the cinema, he was the cinematographer on Paris, Texas, and a bunch of Jim Jarmusch movies, including Coughing Cigarettes. Oh, no way. Yeah. yeah. And so, like, all these, like, very, like, stylized movies, and then to make this movie that is essentially like a Pennebaker movie or something, like, the, again, like, handheld camera, just like following people around backstage. Have um, you seen any other uh, Michael Winterbottom movies? Because he tends to have, like, a pretty loose style and that's like part of his uh it's just like part of his aesthetic like he had this one movie nine songs which interspersed a ton of con actual concert footage with some actors in there yeah I but seen uh this hits a lot of the buttons it's like supremely british all about a uh, love of music particularly from manchester uh shaky camera work full frontal nudity it's got all the hallmarks of michael winterbottom <laughs> movie <laughs> those are the yeah well, well that's where the winterbottom name comes from long <laughs> ago one of his ancestors had a bare ass in the cold and blood it's memory a, it sounds like a minor character in a christmas carol <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah it does yeah <laughs> totally um yeah, so we see that first Sex Pistol show where he's like totally blown away, which is also again like just seeing the juxtaposition of like there being like 42 people in the crowd or whatever, where he's like, it was this momentous event and there were a bunch of people kind of like, you know, not filling a room, just sort of like standing and not really moving. Kind, kind of pogoing yeah. a little bit, yeah. Yeah. I love that brief shot of Pete Shelley in the back too, and it's just a guy who vaguely looks like him and yeah. that's all you get. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh, another thing that I kind of liked, and I mean, a lot of times when you're talking about punk or punk adjacent music, there's, you know, for all the degrees of like anarchy and chaos, there's usually a lot of like elitism and dogma and like barriers to entry. And what's nice about this is like, 
at no point does Tony ever try to like fit in with the people he looks like. They they make fun of how he looks. Uh, yeah. Right off the bat, but because he's just like kind of a glib son of a bitch, he just like does not give a shit. And that's that's cool to see a movie where it's like, oh, Rhett, when this guy gets into punk and doesn't like you know cut his hair in a mirror. Totally. No, that's a good point. And then he kind of follows. He pretty seamlessly moves from like punk into rave music and is like just as psyched about that music and genuinely supportive of it. Yeah, it's uh, weird. Like in a lot of ways, he just kind of seems like a businessman or something. Yeah. And then, Terrible at actual business. <laughs> yeah, come to find out he's like the worst businessman ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like, like I, oh, sorry, go ahead, Jim. I was just gonna say, I don't like what was his motivation really in a lot of ways. It's kind of just like, just living his life in a way. I, I don't even know, like, I don't know. Right. I, he, just wanted to be, he just wanted to be able to hang out with his friends and have a cool place to listen to music. I think that's it, or like showboating in a way. Showboating, yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the, the shit about the table. The um, table is great, yeah. Yeah. I, I also really like that when the guy from uh, from London comes in, admires the table first yeah. <laughs> right and like the fact that he never quits his day job like it's not even a a dream of his like i want to get out of this as like degrading as these like news stories are that he's covering you know like ufo sightings and whatever it's like he's never like i want to quit my job so i can follow my dreams it's like no i'm just gonna do this and have this like alter ego which i feel like is very true to like probably all of our experiences playing music and playing in bands. I don't know, going to your job where it's like these people have no idea what I what I do at night. Yeah. Yeah. And that's nice because that's also not a thing you often see in movies based on true stories because it's not really dramatic when you go to fucking work after, you know, like you it's see like some cool. life changing art and then like, you know, yeah. you're kind of tired and over at the office and that's just your life. But that's reality. I mean, yeah. at least they show that side of someone working within a scene like this, you know totally. what I mean? It's yeah. nice to see that represented in cinema. <laughs> and, and it's also like not portrayed as like depressing or a failure. Yeah. But yeah, so I guess like before starting Factory Records, um, he gets into organizing his own music events. He has like musicians on his show and he's- Here, It's a club night at uh, some place with a guy named Tone. Yeah, and that's like where like Joy Division starts playing and he kind of, you know, his dreams are growing in terms of, of where he wants to be. I, I had a I had one problem. The man who played Ian Curtis just seemed too old. There are all these like close-up shots of his face with like light reflected on it, and the actor was like it's just like a little bit too old. I could just the crow's feet were distracting for a man who died in his twenties. Yeah. I, see, I thought the performance was really strong. I do see like how I'll you would that, look yeah. at him and think it's old, but like, yeah, all the live stuff of Ian Curtis, I thought like he did the best job he could, really. Yeah, totally. and, that, that, and that's a really minor gripe. I don't know. I need to pick nits all the time, but <laughs> <laughs> he looked enough like him. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, so we kind of see like the rise and fall of Joy Division, like sort of in the well I guess of Ian Curtis like in the middle of the movie which it was like it's like the typical rock biopic arc but just sort of like condensed to this one <laughs> character which is interesting it's so sad 
That's so sad. Yeah. So sad. <laughs> he was like 24 when he 25 or something like that. I yeah. forgot it. Uh, they were like right at the cusp of, they were supposed to go tour America. The next day. Yeah. 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 So we, yeah, we kind of see like Joy Division recording their album um, with Unknown Pleasures with Martin Hannett. With Martin Martin Hannett. Hannett. Yeah. Played by um, Andy Serkis, who we'll probably see again if we ever watch the movie where he plays Ian Dury. Oh, oh really? yeah. Really? Or probably in a few years when they make some sort of motion capture movie where Elvis goes around in the world, it will probably be performed by Andy Serkis because they <laughs> hire for those kinds of gigs. So he was king. When he played Dury, was that like uh was that like a stiff records movie or something? Or no, no, there, there's a movie, I think it's just called Sex. Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, and you should put that Oh, list. really? It's just about Ian Dury. Yeah. Really? And they made a whole movie his son, Baxter. They made a whole movie, yeah. People play members of the Blockheads. They wow. don't, re- yeah. Oh, man, he was It just in, doesn't um, seem like there would be enough there to make a full movie about it. <laughs> yeah, and they don't even touch on the fact that he's in, um, what is it? I think he's in Demolition Man, too. No way. Yeah, Ian Dury's in Demolition Man. That's wow. true. Or if not Demolition Man, something very similar to Demolition Man. The Running Man? He was not the Running Man, but the Running Man is similar <laughs> and excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Wish we could talk about that movie. <laughs> yeah, so they record their album with Tony Wilson and Martin Hennett. And oh my God, Martin, Martin Hennett is just portrayed as like, like the best kind of like brilliant madman who like you know he's like so good at his job but he just like doesn't make any sense or he's like, oh yeah he's like the the it's like a rock and roll archetype the mad scientist which i think tony actually calls him at one point mm-hmm. it's like oh yeah. it was the mad scientist in here <laughs> yeah but um, yeah the the you know the producer who's willing to do what it takes to get the best possible record. I right. love the introduction of him where he drives out to that farm <laughs> and he's standing on top of a hill recording the silence. You know, yeah. <laughs> he's like, recording of silence. Yeah. And then he points the mic at him. He's like, "I'm recording Tony fucking Wilson." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so good. But um, that guy, that's a dark character. Like I went and read up on him after the fact and like. He died when he was 34, uh, and they show that in the movie. I know we'll get to that yeah. later. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it said he, he weighed almost 400 pounds at that point. And geez. Oh my God. Yeah, just really I, all in. Yeah. And I, like, it's funny because watching it, I'm like, this name isn't even ringing a bell. Like, obviously, like, Unknown Pleasures is a, like, classic everybody knows, but like, I'm American. Like, we don't do the happy Mondays. <laughs> like, right. It's not like, oh man, either the second Mondays album. We don't, I mean, we don't even talk about the Stone Roses like that. That's a band that's much more famous. Right. Yeah. The Manchester yeah. thing, like, especially for people in Manchester is such a big deal. And yeah, you're right. Like Americans don't have the same worship of it. You know, I yeah. certainly don't like. Right, like other than, I mean, Joy Division, <laughs> slash new order well, i mean well, none yeah. of those are no i mean like, uh names i love tons of manchester music but i think that 90s like rave culture aspect oh, yeah. of like madchester is just something that like doesn't really I, 
resonate? Yeah. I, I will say. say, actually, for whatever reason, that music I found way more enjoyable now than when I watched this in the mid 2000s. Then it was like totally unre unrelatable. Now, I don't know, it's stupid, but it sounds like kind of a good time. <laughs> yeah. Right? I don't know. I, Let's I talk about that. the Mondays and how the Mondays are portrayed. Oh, actually. Well, should we stay on the Joy Division tip? Yeah. Or yeah. Go chronologically, maybe? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, also, I also really loved in that recording session when another wild thing that Martin does is have, have the drummer go to the roof and just drum up there. And he's like, how will I know when to come down? And they're like, oh, oh, you'll know, we'll, we'll let you know. And then they obviously like forget him and drive away and he's still up there drumming, presumably hours later. But then it what, sounds really cool. Well, one thing that I, I like is we see him in the studio and he's playing all these drums and it's just, it sounds horrible. And then by the time he had him set, him up, set up on the roof, it's just a super minimal kit, one little tom. And yeah. he just plays that like super iconic beat from, what is that, She's Lost Control? The, mm -hmm. That's such a cool beat too, I don't know. <laughs> Everything the, the actor who played Hannah said too, like I, it was so perfect because like people have said that shit to me or like people that I'm with in the studio, you know, where he was like, I think he was like, play slower but faster. Yeah. Or like, or like <laughs> just make it simple, you know, all that shit. That's right, great. totally, totally. You know, I thought that was a great studio scene in terms of what it's really like to be in a studio and not having like the brilliant first take or anything. Like it didn't, like, again, like throughout the movie, there's like very little idealizing or um, yeah, showing music as this like magical thing that just, you know, Again, it's, out of nowhere. it's the accessibility at Celebrates. There's the scene where, you know, again, when they're big for their britches, they're in their new, uh, their new boardroom at Factory Records. And uh, the other guy, uh, Rob Gretton, attacks him when he finds out what the cost of the table was. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, he, he was really good, too. I want to say Patty Considine is the actor. You see him in other stuff too, but he was, uh, I really enjoyed him as uh, Rob Gretton, the new order manager. Um, so yeah, then, you know, we see the downfall of Ian Curtis, which is, you know, we get like a few just like con concise sort of like, all right, things are going to be bad soon. Like he's like clearly stressed out about this American tour um, that everyone else is really excited about. The epilepsy is getting worse. Yeah, he yeah collapses on stage, goes to see Tony, but Tony's not home, and talks to his wife. And there's like one of those moments where, if you had no idea what the real history was, you'd be like, oh, he's like definitely gonna die soon. <laughs> She's like, why don't you stay? And he's just like, I can't, but I'll write you a postcard. It'll say, wish you were here. And but just like the drama and which all of those lines are delivered, it's like, uh oh. <laughs> And it's all paired with the rising of the National Front, too. Yeah. And there's that whole scene with, like, the skinheads coming to the Joy Division shows. And uh, definitely, you know, it's funny because he, like, Steve Coogan vocalizes that it's, like, the end of the first act. And it really does feel like that halfway through the movie when Ian dies and there's that whole, like, artistic sequence of, like, the kids carrying his portrait on the beach and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Totally. I love that, too. That was cool. And the fact that, like, again, like, the freedom that they have because of breaking the fourth wall, where they were, like, 
even after Ian dies, they're like, oh, but there was this final Joy Division show um, that I forgot to mention. And that was that point, right? Where he's like, it almost like goes back in time to kind of give like. Yeah, saying that think, like he had good memories of him and he wasn't yeah. like as dark as people thought. Right, know? right, right. When they were playing like Louie Louie. Um, Again, but it's all in the kind of like big hearted, fairly generous spirit of the movie. Mm -hmm. Oh no, no, I'm, I'm saying I liked it. Yeah. Why? Well, yeah, yeah. Why well, it's kind of fun. Um, totally. At that point, I loved when Tony, like after that whole scene, he's like, I forget who he was quoting, but he was like, "Americans, American lives don't have second acts, but we're from Gerald." Yeah, yeah, and he's yeah, like, yeah. But we're from Manchester. Yeah. So and he's yeah, like, yeah. so this is the second act. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Cool. <laughs> yeah, so great. Which, uh, yeah, second act really comes roaring in with um, the introduction of the Happy Mondays. And oh my God, these guys. I didn't know that much about them. And reading up on this band, it's like they were every much the insane um, people that they were portrayed as in this movie. But um, yeah, it opens with Paul and Sean Ryder the brothers in the band feeding rat poison to pigeons and then just like the pigeons falling from the sky which seems like a just ridiculous and psychotic thing to do yeah but you, you know what there there's this whole thing of being a uh, just like a punter from the north of england where you have like the sort of aggression associated with the collapse of uh, of like industry up there and uh the chip on your shoulder about being from the north and totally uh, it, you, you find these like uh real unsavory people your liam gallagher's your your rider brothers and like what we were talking about the with sid and nancy um yeah just like the boredom that results in not being able to get a job and not having yeah. anything to do. I think that was the perfect way to set them up too, just because of like the attitude of their band and it was just so freewheeling and like goofy in a yeah. lot of ways, you know, it's setting them up as these kind of like jokers in some way, which is played out through the rest of the movie. Totally. And who are like ultimately, you know, like Tony has a consistently good relationship with them for like, how wild, wild they are. And again, this is also where we see the gap kind of being bridged between like the indie rock scene that was sort of like the first part of the movie and um, yeah, more the like the- Manchester Acid House stuff. Yep. Yeah. yeah, totally. Um, the whole incident where they have to go by the master tapes to the album off of Sean, Sean Ryder. Oh, really yeah. funny. Where where they're freaking? So they get basically a ransom demand for the for the master tapes. Well, let's set that up even <laughs> before that. I oh mean, yeah. First of yeah. all, they they go to Barbados to record that album because they didn't want them to get drugs, and they're like, "There's no heroin in Barbados," but they all get addicted to crack, so they ended up selling all their stuff and like studio equipment for more drugs and that's what results in him holding the tape for ransom. Well, the, the whole thing is it was with, you know, 
Tony, being just a normal guy from Manchester, also understands that it's not about to be like, oh, we have to buy the master tapes for $10,000. He literally gives him whatever is in his wallet, which is like 30, 40 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean, this almost like, they're, they're, this movie doesn't have the sort of dramatic arc where someone kicks drugs or finally achieves widespread recognition. There, there's none of that. Basically, the biggest drama you find is that like, oh no, the factory records blew all their money on a nice table and, and uh, expensive sleeves for New Order singles and just general right. Well, and also from its like inception, there was a contract about not having contracts. And so, you know, when they were first putting out Joy Division's music, you know, he makes a contract with his own blood, basically saying, like, I don't own your, your music. Um, that's not what this label is about. So yeah, it's never a profitable operation. He, he, he preemptively prevents himself from being able to sell out, as he points out to the smug Southerner record executive who they need to rely on to get the money to finish the Happy Mondays album. Mm -hmm. um, I was also reminded a lot of, so Jim, a few weeks ago or whatever, months ago, I don't even know anymore. Um, we talked about the CBGB movie, which is like oh a very, God, yeah. very similar setup and that it's like about the the manager primarily, but like. Not, not someone with the sort of musical or artistic talent necessarily, but a supportive, good natured behind the scenes and a, Yeah, as like a right. lens into like a, a larger scene, um, but. Hilly Crystal's relationship with the Dead Boys was like very, <laughs> very similar to. Oh, totally. Tony Just Wilson's wrangling them. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And being like, this is the next big thing. I can kind of see it. Or like, this is where music is going. But these people are so crazy and just. Tangentially, so much money. <laughs> my favorite part of that CBGB's movie is just that fucking Rupert Grint is Cheetah Crow. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, what? <laughs> Who thought this was a good idea? Right, right. They, they, they're like, all right, we're bringing in the star power. We've got Alan Rickman in his final role. We've got Rupert Grint. We've got... He's a redhead. He's Yeah, famous. we have the it's drummer perfect. from the Foo Fighters. <laughs> Speaking of which, there were... Uh, so uh, normally we talk about you know what I call stunt casting, where they put musicians in roles as musicians or stars in roles as musicians. This uh, I thought was really funny how they call attention to it and even show us on screen previous cameos from earlier in the movie for characters you would not have noticed. I loved that. Yeah, that was so funny. <laughs> like I'm a like massive fall fan like i, I caught margie smith in there first day i was like yo yeah <laughs> same here yeah i mean he when even I say calls I love, him mark yeah. yeah yeah he's like oh hey mark yeah but um yeah i mean when i said i love manchester music earlier really that's what i'm talking about it's like <laughs> i love the fall like so much um and just to just to see mark for like two seconds it, it was like made the movie for me because i actually had a situation just like that too and it gave me like crazy flashbacks when i was living in the uk and uh i wa he walked past me at a pub whoa. and i was just like whoa like, what the <laughs> and i didn't say anything to him but I, was, I was like too scared to talk to the guy he's like my hero you know yeah 
He also is not, he would probably have been really fucking mean to you also. Of course. Everyone I know that has talked to him, like. Like savage. Yeah, that's just who he is, you know. Where does he, where does he live? He's dead now. Oh, sorry, that's right. I did know that. Um, Where did he live? He grew up in Salford, which is just on the other side of Manchester. It's still part of Manchester. Yeah. Um, And yeah, I, I was in Edinburgh and I saw them play in Edinburgh like uh I guess it was it's like eight months before he died or something like Whoa. that. Whoa, yeah. And there That's was uh, briefly they had uh the cameos. Had, yeah. Yeah. They had many from the Stone Roses in there. And yep. one time I met him briefly and he was a nice man with a gravelly voice and uh seemed to be drunk. <laughs> and then the guy from the Derudi column was in there too, but they kept yeah. seeing out of the movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Tony Wilson himself is a makes a cameo appearance, um, criticizing the character Tony Wilson. Super meta. Um, one, oh, one thing about Manchester, real quick though. When oh, yeah. I when I went to Manchester, I I went to a show and I got off the train, and right when you get off the main uh, train in Manchester now. You look to the left and there's this huge condo building and there's a massive sign on the side of it and it just says Hacienda Condos. Oh. And they, they've oh. turned the Hacienda into like luxury condos and they oh use the name to like upsell it. God. Okay. You, 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 did you see that thing when um, it was announced that Great Scott was closing? Somebody made like a satirical website about how it was about to be converted into condos known as the Scott. And <laughs> Uh, everyone, everybody was always like, yeah, obviously, and it turned out to be a joke, but it was still way too real. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> everyone was sharing it, and it was like, no, this isn't real, but very, uh, very believable. Um, Jim, when you were in Ma- Manchester recently, was it, like, I don't know, is there any sort of, like, scene there that resembles? Oh, I yeah, don't know. for sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like, um, I mean, there's been so many periods of Manchester music like we've been talking about, you know? And they all have distinct members and people that like, look like they're from that time. You know what I mean? Like you can spot them and you're like, oh, there's an Oasis fan or- Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 like a Fishtail Parko walking down the sidewalk, funny. (laughs) Exactly. So I only went there once and it was for a festival uh, called, I think it was like Manchester Psych Fest or something like that. And it was in a big, like, Victorian train station. Um, the lineup was amazing. And I think I saw Sleaford Mods, and then it was like Jesus and Mary Chain. Dang. Um, I don't even remember. It was a yeah. huge festival. I was very drunk. The, the the Mancurians were very nice to me. They found out I was American and I just hung out with these people all night. Uh, but the Mancunian def- candidate? Yeah. When, when, <laughs> but like you're saying, like, um, I think there's something very particular about people from Manchester. And when I was there, like, they don't feel like Londoners and they, they, they don't feel like people from super far north. They're like this weird purgatory type people. I get that. Yeah. Being love from football. Boston, we've got, you exactly, know, yeah. I feel like... Chip on our shoulder, yeah. Which is also, I'm moving to Philadelphia. That should be a very easy transition, having that exact same chip on my shoulder for New York. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and I feel like this movie too, I mean, like, I don't even want to say this because it's the most overused thing to describe a movie that is about a city, but <laughs> with a city being a character in this movie, like, it was just done really well in terms of just showing how this scene really could have only come out of this city and, like, what about this city could produce that. So maybe it's just not being from there, but I also felt like it was presented in a way that wasn't pandering either. Uh, I felt like there was a lot of genuine love for the place and a genuine effort to try to, you know, create an illustration of a time and place. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, which I thought like the, like the news segments were used really well to do that. Like it was a way to kind of like show Manchester more broadly and not just like this one club and like, you know, this one record label, but kind of just more broadly, you know, the fact that it was like this post, or it is this post-industrial city with a lot of decay, but also a lot of character and weirdness. I loved the news segment he did with the duck that was herding sheep. Yeah! <laughs> that was just like a great moment to like Double take left. a break. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally! The who knew ducks could do that? Oh, and, and also the, um, the man who washed the elephant. That guy played R2-D2 in Star Wars. <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh, wait. Well, yeah, they filmed a lot of Star Wars in the UK, so that makes sense. There you I go. Think that man Manchester, was inside R2-D2. <laughs> That's wild. That is some stunt casting right there. I don't know. All right. What else do we have to talk about? I guess we didn't really talk about the nightclub too much, but just basically throughout all of this, in like the early 80s, Tony Wilson opened the nightclub, the Hacienda, which was like kind of became where the Happy Mondays um, were born out of after coming in last at a battle of the bands. Um, he decided to I, I make like the record. How in the voiceover he talks about how that type of music was problematic for the venue because it was fueled by ecstasy. So mm -hmm. nobody was buying drinks at the bar. I was like, that wouldn't have occurred to me. Right, that you was know, like part of why they went out of business. And then just more broadly, like drugs and guns being in the city, they weren't, they didn't come out of this scene, but obviously like they came into the club at some point, which. One thing uh, with the Happy Mondays, like I'm not super familiar with the music or anything, but uh, when they started talking about all the drugs and stuff, there's that one dude, Bez. Yes. And I just love that character, like <laughs> just giving him the maracas and like him passing out the drugs and like they want him in the studio with them. It's just like that one dude that's around that like makes them feel like it's okay. It's like know? the hype man, yeah. yeah. What, what was... I, I sent Kathleen in a text earlier. I was like, for if you have the charisma to be the Maraca guy, you should be, but, but yeah. not everyone can be a Bez or a Joel guy on, you know? Um, but it's also a reminder that like music is such a mascot. A, yeah, it's like such a visual medium. Like he doesn't play anything, but it's like, he's so much fun to watch. Um, one thing I will say that's kind of incredible about this whole story is that there are two completely distinct movements that happened around this one person's life, you know, like. Yeah, yeah. Not, a, <laughs> like, not a lot of overlap in the styles. Yeah, it's crazy, like a clear break and like two completely different things. And like, if there's anything from the Mondays part, it's like the start of rave culture 
You know what I mean? Like, right. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. Coming out <laughs> of this, like, sort of like depressive. Cerebral. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like vibe wise, seeming totally, totally different. different. Yeah. Yeah. What's with that? I don't know. It's very rare. Like, I don't think you find many people that traverse two completely different music scenes and like have such an integral role in them happening. Right. You know? I mean, I guess you find, uh, I think Seymour Stein signed both Madonna and the Ramones. Yeah. But you know I guess, what? I guess you're no, right. When, when you, you talk about it like that, you also people. start yeah. seeing the, the connective tissue between those two as well. Yeah. Yeah. True, true. Uh, I'm just gonna flip a light on, hold on a second. Yeah, so yeah, I guess the movie wraps up with both the end of Factory Records and the nightclub, the Hacienda. So the Hacienda kind of goes out of business and then Factory but Records. He, but he has a lot of friends. But he's a lot of friends and he tells them to loot the offices on the last night. And then the joke with selling Factory Records just being, you know, the execs from london are there and nothing to sell nothing to, nothing sell. to sell they they, they didn't own the, the they didn't own the records and i read something that was just i thought this was so funny just like more interplay between real life and the dramatization of real life um i read this interview with a real tony wilson where he said that line delivered by steve coogan that you know there's nothing to sell I protect myself from the dilemma of selling out by having nothing to sell. Uh, he was like, I couldn't have, it's, I couldn't have said it that succinctly and like used it in his book that he wrote like a couple of years later. <laughs> really wild. Well, you know what? Sometimes screenwriters are it. So that is one of those times where yes, the screenwriters uh, are able to take something and make it more straightforward and eloquent but uh in general so much of it felt naturalistic and real that uh you know no totally mm -hmm. Fine. oh i have one anecdote that i wanted to bring up oh yeah that i discovered and it actually ties into rupert grint being in the cbgb <laughs> movie yes so this is a perfect like tie together um <laughs> Tony Wilson's wife in the movie, Lindsay, the actress who plays her, is moaning Myrtle from the Harry Whoa! Potter. <laughs> That's so, I feel like I always see on listicles of like, did you know this actor is actually 50? Who's playing a 15 year old? It's like, moaning Myrtle is really like 34 in those movies. <laughs> and I feel it's, like I've seen that so much recently. That's so funny. It's one of those <laughs> things like, um, Allison watched the movie with me and she was like, where do I know this woman from? And she looked it up and like, flipped out <laughs> that is some great uh a great connection between the cbgb movie and 24-hour party people harry potter is the and harry, harry potter harry. the holy trinity is us cinema fans call it. <laughs> yes. um oh i love that that's great yeah so at the very end of the movie tony wilson has like a vision of god who is also played by steve coogan that's also I thought it was fun. Yeah, and I, I liked how campy it was too. It reminded me of um, it reminded me of like Life of Brian or yeah. the Holy Grail or something like that. Totally. The, the cutouts. Yeah, yeah. The the, the visual style definitely. Yeah, For I think sure. That was deliberate. And I also just like loved some of the lines afterwards where, you know, he's like, "God looked like me," and Rob is like, kind of like that's like super self-centered and he's like well it's written in the bible you know god made man in his own image and he's like yeah but not a specific man <laughs> um 
so funny but yeah oh, but it, it ends with him talking about his heroic flaw because you know he's like obsessed with the classics and everything and like hubris and whatever but his heroic flaw is his civic pride his excess of civic pride oh there's one other joke that made me laugh really hard is when he's stoned talking to uh, to his other partner and claims that the vegetable broccoli was invented by Albert Cubby Broccoli, the producer of the James Bond I franchise. meant to look into that. I meant <laughs> to look into there that. Is, there is, I don't know, there is some sort of connection, but I, I can't tell you what it is. I read I, an article where there was like a, a shred of truth to that when I meant to follow that. Oh, was that the Roger Ebert review? I think so. <laughs> yeah. I love yeah, that I don't, when I, he said that too, he was like, yeah, it's in the Encyclopedia Britannica, go look it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Martin Hannett almost shoots him with the blank. Yeah. That was great. Yeah, oh yeah, a lot of guns in like the last part of the movie. Well, a lot of guns. About guns, this actually does seem like a good time to transition into the substance abuse report. Yes. Thank you, Ryan, take it away. Okay, uh, all right. So, um, We've got alcohol, grass, a lot of grass actually, all throughout. We've got ecstasy. We've got cocaine, like powdered, insufflated. We've got crack cocaine. We've got heroin. And we've got methadone. And I think that about covers it. That's a, that's a whole spectrum. Isn't there some unidentified drug that Bez is doing at some point? Not oh, it's some psychedelic, presume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any final, final thoughts? What, what rating would you guys give this one? Ooh, I will say this was among the more enjoyable movies that I think we've watched. It did not feel like work, and again, just because it was so funny, like consistently. Um, and I feel like give you the feel of a scene without being too like heavy-handed or too um you know trying to be too precise about depicting events as if they as they actually happened and getting too caught up in like the dramatization everything that we were kind of saying already but i, I really liked it you guys need like a four la bombas i'd give it three and a half la bombas yeah exactly like <laughs> <laughs> Ask and you shall receive. <laughs> I'll give it a solid 4.5 La Bambas. <laughs> I guess it's I'm what sorry, is the, the scale La Bamba of... scale only goes to four, Jim. <laughs> 1,000 La Bambas. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's great. I, I, I'm I, going to say four. I would highly recommend this movie. Much better than The Dirt. <laughs> <laughs> we will cover it someday. Well, we'll be talking about that with you at some point. Yeah. Uh, Jim, any uh, any music projects, art, anything you want to talk about or promote? Uh, I mean, yeah, everything's come to a screeching halt being at home for four months, but sure, I've just been sure, recording sure. at home. So uh, making new music at home, hopefully be able to play out soon with you guys. Hell yeah. Um, hey, I'm gone. Yeah, good luck in Philly. That's awesome. <laughs> Um, yeah, definitely check out the Kremlin Bats on Spotify and Bandcamp and everywhere. It is a great band. Yeah, well, thanks so much for joining us, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, guys. You guys are the best. Oh, stop.
stop it. You are. All you right. Stop. Catch us next time on Rock and Roll Film Club. Bye. Bye. Do it again. Okay. All right, Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Jim. Do it once.